Welcome to the podcast for Icon Church. We are a Seattle-based community that believes all people are icons of the invisible God, made in his image to reflect his glory and grace. Thank you, Justin, for that sweet time introduction. Although, I don't know when you started saying basically just listen to me because of my British accent, I'm getting a little bit offended there. Um, so, Justin's really happy you're here. I'm happy you're here too, but I feel a little bit sad for you that it's Friday night and the best thing you think on your calendar is to listen to me. So, you know, just going to say that, just going to leave it there. Maybe next Friday we can do something a little bit more exciting. I just want to say, isn't this a great venue? Like, I do my PhD in Shakespeare, and part of me just wants to declaim Shakespeare to you now. Because it's just, you know, calling forth the frustrated actors in me, but it's okay, we'll save that for another time. So I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but a few months ago, a good friend of mine ended a bad relationship. And it was one of those situations where you can see if your friend is in a relationship with a guy who just isn't good for her before she sees it. And you feel like she's kind of so deep in the trenches of that relationship that she can't see what's happening. And you're standing on the edge, you're reaching your hand down to help your friend out. And they're standing there going, oh no, no, it's fine down here. I mean, apart from the terrible things he says to me and the ways he makes me feel awful about myself, and the fact that there are things that I'm only doing because I'm, I'm too afraid of his reactions to do anything different, it's really great. And he says that he loves me, and I, I really just can't imagine life without him. I had a friend a few years ago, his boyfriend put her on a popcorn-only diet, like a diet where she was basically only allowed to eat popcorn because he thought that it would cure her eczema. Now, to be clear, he didn't care that my friend was suffering with eczema, but it annoyed him when she was scratching in the night and it woke him up. She kind of sounds like, why are you with this guy? My guess is that all of us have been in that situation where we've walked through these relationships with a friend and the writing's been on the wall. But no matter what we say, it's not going to open our eyes to that until they're ready to receive it. And then there comes the point where they break up with this boyfriend or girlfriend and we sit across from our heartbroken friend and we utter those time-honoured, sacred words, you know, you're really better off without him. Now for some people in this room, religion might feel like that boyfriend that you're just better off without. You may have grown up in a very religious family, and it may honestly have felt like leaving an abusive relationship. It may have felt like freedom to leave that behind. Or maybe it wasn't so much an abusive relationship, it was just kind of boring. It was like the boyfriend who you're happy to bring home to your grandma at Christmas, but frankly not that interested in hanging out with the rest of the year. Or perhaps you're in a situation where you feel a little bit a little bit wistful, a bit nostalgic. You kind of wish you could have faith. But serious religious belief just doesn't seem viable in the modern world. Our question tonight, as Justin mentioned, is aren't we better off without religion? But because religion is this massive catch-all category that scoops up everyone from an ISIS fighter to an Amish farmer and lumps them all together, I'm going to focus that down to the world's largest religion, the religion to which, at least nominally, one in three humans in this world today ascribe, and ask the question, aren't we better off without Christianity?
Now, because Icon Church is hosting this event, you may not be surprised to know that my answer to that question is no. But I want to offer four reasons for us to consider this evening. First, is that Christianity is good for you. The second is that Christianity is good for us. The third is that Christianity defines goodness. And the fourth is that Christianity might just be true. Now, if you're not a Christian here tonight, I really appreciate you coming out, much as I just knocked you for doing so. And I appreciate you taking the time to listen to what I have to say. People sometimes say you should respect other people's beliefs, and I don't actually agree with that. I think you should respect other people. But sometimes people believe really stupid things. So if you think that what I believe is stupid, I'm okay with that. And I really look forward to the Q&A time that Justin mentioned. I'd love to hear some more of your thoughts and questions and objections, and I'd be glad to talk with you afterwards as well. So to our first point, somewhat controversial, Christianity is good for you. In 2006, my fellow countryman, the late new atheist author Christopher Hitchens, published his tour de force, God is not great, how religion poisons everything. And this was one of the big battle cries of the new atheist movement, that religion is bad for you. But ironically, given that the new atheists also hang their hats on scientific evidence, turns out that the science and empirical evidence point us in a different direction. Harvard professor of epidemiology, Tyler Vanderbilt, wrote an op-ed for USA Today in 2016 under the title, Religion May Be a Miracle Drug. It began like this. I think you can see as a single Alexia to improve the mental and physical health of millions of Americans at no personal cost, what value would society place on it? The op-ed went on to describe the mental and physical health benefits of regular religious participation, even to the extent of reducing mortality rates by 20 to 30% over a 15-year period. This effect is not limited to Christianity, but most of the studies have been done on church going. It turns out that people who go to church once a week or more are less likely to suffer from depression, are happier and more optimistic, are less likely to commit suicide, are less likely to take drugs, are more self-controlled, more likely to be in stable marriages, the list goes on and on. Another Harvard professor you may have heard of, atheist author and psychologist Stephen Paper, dismisses this data, and particularly the data that shows that Religious people are happier than their secular peers, with a quip from Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw. Shaw said, a believer is happier than a skeptic is no more to the point than the fact that a drunken person is happier than a sober one. But this is too easy in and out. Because drunk people are not more self-controlled, less likely to be depressed, less likely to commit suicide, more likely to be in stable marriages, more optimistic about the future, and so on and so on, less likely to die in the next 15 years. Professor Vanderbilt's metaphor of an elixir is far more apt. A couple of years ago, I was at a conference with Francis Collins, who was previously the director of the Human Genome Project and is now the head of the National Institute of Health. 
And I referenced this data to him and I said, do you think this means that secularization in America is a public health crisis? And he agreed. And Collins himself has a very interesting story. He grew up in a secular home and transitioned from agnosticism to atheism when he was a student at Yale. But then he became a junior doctor. And his atheism was shaken by the suffering that he saw in his patients and by the way that his Christian patients were dealing with it. He remembers in particular one woman who was suffering from severe and unspeakable pain and crying out to Jesus in her distress. And one day this woman shared her faith in Jesus with Collins and then asked him a simple question. Doctor, what do you believe? I felt my face flush, Collins recalled, as I stammered out the words, I'm not really sure. He left the room as quickly as he could, but that conversation started him on a journey of exploration and research, which ended in him putting his faith in the same Jesus that that woman had been calling out to. The most senior physician in this country believes that Christianity is good for you, and it's both his professional opinion and his personal one. But is Christianity like that, that boyfriend who we're really into but our friends frankly don't like because he takes us away from them and makes us more selfish and more self-focused and less interested than others? That brings us to our second point, which is that Christianity is good for us. Contrary to the neo-Buddhist narrative, People who go to church once a week or more give 3.5 times as much money to charity as their secular peers. They volunteer twice as much. They are half as likely to engage in domestic violence, and they're less likely to commit at least 43 other crimes. Now, don't get me wrong. We all know Christians who are selfish jerks. And we all know atheists, and perhaps you're one here tonight, who are genuinely extremely caring of others, very generous with their money and with their time. And one of the central premises of Christianity is that we, I, am not a good person. So that is not the point that I'm making at all. But it is not like it less the case that on average, people who are showing up to church every week and exposing themselves to the teachings of a man who called his followers to love those who were in need, to love across difference, to love even their enemies, does seem to have an impact on our behaviour. Christianity, it seems, is genuinely good for us as a great society. But this raises an interesting question, and it's one that, that sometimes we fail to ask as 21st century Westerns. It, it seems almost like a dumb question. What does it mean to be good? And that brings us to our third point, which is that Christianity defines goodness. And we need that definition. Another fellow countryman of mine, Richard Dawkins, looks at the universe through the lens of atheism. And he says, the universe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no good, no evil, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference, Do you see that? 
Richard Dawkins looks at the, the fabric of the universe and he sees no moral fabric at all. No design, no purpose, no good, no evil, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. MIT professor and agnostic science writer Alan Lightman describes a human condition like this. Our consciousness and our self-awareness create the illusion that we have some special kind of ego power, some I-ness, some unique existence, but in reality we are nothing but bones, tissues, gelatinous membranes, electrical impulses and chemicals. Do you see that? The more you listen to atheist and agnostic leaders today, the more you realise it's not just that they don't believe in God, they actually don't believe in human beings either. We are a collection of atoms, says Alan Lightman, like trees and like donuts. Or listen to Sam Harris in his 2012 book, Free Will, where he says, the idea that we as conscious beings are deeply responsible for our mental states and subsequent behaviours is simply impossible to map into reality. From the perspective of these atheist leaders, it's not just that there's no God, there's no such thing as a human being, and we human beings certainly do not have any real moral agency. The fact that atheism cannot ground good and evil and cannot give us true, a true sense of human value dawned gradually for a friend of mine who was one of the few people who knew both me and my husband before we knew each other. My friend Sarah Irvin Stonebacker is a history professor at the University of Australia. She was a convinced atheist when she came to Cambridge to do her PhD. She was a convinced atheist when she went to Oxford to do her postdoc. But while she was at Oxford, she went to a series of lectures by fellow Australian atheist philosopher Peter Singer. Now Singer is an extremely smart man and a very um, consistent and well thought through atheist. And one of the things he argues is that we cannot and should not value human beings equally simply because they're human, but that we should evaluate all beings, human or otherwise, according to their capacities. So for example, the capacity to suffer, the capacity to self-awareness, the capacity to, to um, have a sense of who you are. And by Singer's calculation, a human infant is less morally valuable than an adult cow. As my friend Sarah listened to these lectures, she experienced what she later described as a kind of intellectual vertigo. As she realized that her atheism cut against everything that she held dear. She thought that Christianity was the enemy of equal human rights, the equality of men and women, justice for different people of different races, and care for the poor. But she gradually discovered that it was the basis for those things. And she ended up putting her faith in Jesus. Christianity defines goodness. A few months ago, I got to review this book, which is called Atheist Overreach, What Atheism Cannot Deliver. It's by Christian Smith, who's a Notre Dame professor, extremely smart man. It's published by Oxford University Press, so it's like a serious academic work. 
And in this book, Chris, uh, Christian Smith is seeking to evaluate where the conceptions today are giving us compelling reasons for their moral beliefs. Because many of these atheist intellectuals, like most of my atheist friends, believe passionately in universal human rights and care for the poor, and the fact that people suffering in an entirely other country, unconnected with us, can make moral demands on us. And this is Smith's conclusion. Perfectly entitled to believe in and act to promote universal benevolence and human rights, but only as an arbitrary, subjective, personal preference, not as a rational, compelling, universally binding fact or obligation. You see that? Take Christianity away, and morality crumbles into preference. Like, I don't like olives. If we want to be able to say that rape is wrong, that murder is wrong, that child abuse is wrong, we need something more than today's atheists can offer us. I met a, another guy a few weeks ago at a friend's birthday party. He also, did have a, apparently have a problem with this, he also is a professor at Harvard uh, in the School of Public Health, and he's grown up in a Jewish family and certainly identifies culturally as Jewish now, but shared with me that he's, he's an atheist. And I said to him, I said, you do realize that that means that you don't have any grounds for objective morality and saying that one thing is good and another thing is evil. He said, yeah, no, I know. I said, okay, just wanted to check. <laughs> Now this is, a, this is a genuinely kind, extremely smart man, but he's okay with that massive limitation in his worldview, and because he doesn't think he has another option. How's that? Better? Okay. Do I have to begin at the beginning again? <laughs> so five years ago, I'm going to sound like someone who only has friends who are Harvard professors, and I promise it's not true. <laughs> But truly, a good friend of mine from grad is another atheist Jewish background uh, Harvard professor in the sciences. And five years ago, I went with him to an event at Harvard where theologian and New Testament professor N.T. Wright was in gala with the chair of the Harvard Philosophy Department, whose name is Shelley Kagan. I mean, sorry, Sean Kelly. Shelley Kagan's a Yale professor. We don't have to worry about him for now. <laughs> um, he's also really smart and atheist and with a Jewish background, there's definitely atheist. <laughs> and after this, after this discussion, I said to my friend, I know that you think what I believe is crazy. And his then girlfriend, who was a much gentler soul than either of us, interviewed. She said, oh, I'm sure he doesn't mean that. I said, yes, he does. I said, I believe that the entire universe revolves around a first century Palestinian Jew who died on a cross and was supposedly raised from the dead three days later. Crazy, right? My friend said, yes. I said, the problem is, I think that you believe some crazy things too. My friends look over at Christianity and they think that they are comparing their worldview to this crazy religion with these crazy beliefs about people rising from the dead. And that they have a perfectly coherent secular worldview that does all the work that Christianity does without them having to believe in crazy things, but there is no such belief system. And in fact, one of the interesting things that happened, that's happened in the last several decades is that sociologists of religion have gone from saying, you know what, 
Clearly, as the world becomes more modern and more educated, it's going to become less religious. To recognising that that's just not true. That was what happened in Western Europe, and so the, the hypothesis was that where Western Europe led, the rest of the world would follow. And as people became more scientifically literate, more educated, and more modern, religious belief just wouldn't survive. But it turns out that now, not only has that prophecy not come true in the last 40 years, but as we look at to the next 40 years, sociologists are anticipating an increasingly religious world. So right now, about 31% of the world identifies as Christian, and that is set to increase slightly to 32% by 2060. Islam is expected to shoot up from that 24% to 31% by then, making it a very close competitor with Christianity. Hinduism and Buddhism are each set to decline slightly, and the proportion of people who do not identify with any religious belief, either atheist, agnostics, or people of no religion, is set to decline from 16% to 13%. The world is not becoming less religious as it becomes more modern and more educated. In fact, the reverse is happening. So what on earth is going on? Part of this picture is what's happening in China. So China right now is the global center of atheism. But the church in China is growing so rapidly that experts believe that by 2030 there will be more Christians in China than in America, and that by 2060 it could be a majority Christian country. Meanwhile, by 2060, 40% of the world's Christians are expected to be living in sub-Saharan Africa. This is an interesting thing. Not only is Christianity the most widespread belief system in the world, it is also the most diverse by far. That's true in America, and it's true around the world. In fact, where atheism is overrepresented by white men in America, Christianity is the religion of women of color. Fangang Yang is a professor of sociology with a particular expertise in the sociology of religion in China. And he anticipates that when this memo finally comes home to roost in the rest of the country, that it's going to cause a paradigm shift, not unlike a scientific revolution. Because much academic enterprise in the last few decades has been based on the idea that religion just isn't going to survive in the modern world, that we don't have to bother with Christianity anymore in particular, and religion in general. And that is simply no longer the case. In fact, as Professor Tyler Vanderbilt, who I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, puts it, any educated person should at some point have seriously examined the claims of Christianity and be able to explain why he or she does or does not believe them. So what are the claims of Christianity? First, that a loving creator God made this entire universe and every human being in it. Now let me be clear, that is not a claim that is in our opposition to scientific accounts of the universe. In fact, contrary to what the Neopolis will tell you, the modern scientific method was first invented by Christians not as an alternative hypothesis to believe in a creator God, but because they believed in a creator God who is both rational and free. So that's the first claim of Christianity, that we were all made by a God who loves us. The second claim is, is a little more hard to swallow for many. And that is that we have all rejected this God, we've rejected his love, we've rejected his authority, 
And we have made a tremendous mess of the world and a tremendous mess of our own lives. We see that mess every time we open a newspaper or read our newsfeed. And if we're honest, we see that mess when we look into our own hearts. And there's a, a screen projecting a number behind me now. Imagine this screen, instead of projecting that number, was projecting your thoughts for the last 20 minutes. How do you feel about that? It's been said that no friendship in the world would survive 24 hours if we could see each other's thoughts. That is absolutely true of me. I would have no friends, I would have no husband, my kids would be devastated if they could see me. <laughs> now, you may say, well, you're clearly just not a very nice person. That is true. <laughs> And maybe you are a much nicer person than I am. I actually was talking with a non-Christian friend of mine a few years ago. We had this conversation, she said, oh, gosh, you're just not a very nice person. I was like, yeah, no, I know. She's like, I think I'm nice to you. I was like, yeah, you probably are. <laughs> this, this mess that comes out of our hearts is, is what the Bible calls sin. And there's an even more unpalatable truth or truth claim that Christianity makes, which is that the sin in our hearts and the sin in our lives and the sin in our world is something that this loving creator God is angry about. And in fact, it calls forth, it justly calls forth his punishment of our sin. As I said, that's a really unpalatable thought for many in our world today. We hate the idea of being judgmental. And yet, as we have seen the Me Too movement sweep through this country in the last couple of years, it's been one of the ways in which we have remembered that there are some things that actually call for judgment. And if there is a God who is in charge of this world, and he is not a God who cares about justice, that is a real problem. But it's even more of a problem when that justice cuts through our own hearts. And this brings us to the first piece of good news in Christianity, which is that God's love for us was so great that he actually became man in the person of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago with the express purpose of dying in our place and taking the punishment for our sin. What's more, Christianity claims that this same first century Palestinian Jew was miraculously raised from the dead three days later and that he invites us into a relationship with him that is the one thing that can carry us through death and give us eternal life and happiness. And so we're now left with a choice. Do we want to fling ourselves into the arms of this one perfectly good man who ever lived and who's the one person who despite knowing all of our thoughts loves us more than we could hardly imagine? Or do we want to reject that offer Continue life as it is until the point where we will be held accountable for our sin. We began this talk by asking, Aren't we better off without religion and focusing on Aren't we better off without Christianity? But I think the real question for each of us here tonight is, Are we better off without Jesus? Are we better off without the one man who truly knows us and deeply, unconditionally, and unquenchably loves us? Are we better off without the one man who can truly give us hope beyond the grave? Are we better off without the man whose life and teachings change the course of history? 
in ways that now enable us to value the least in our society and to care for those across the globe because they have a moral claim on us. One of the most extraordinary things about the Bible that I've actually only come to realise fully in the last couple of years myself is that the God who, who made the world built into our lived existence metaphors so that we could understand what it means for him to love us. We see this in parenting, you may have had the idea that God is our father. And that's because the absolute best human father you could ever imagine can give us a tiny glimpse of what it means for God to love us. And likewise, God created romantic love and sexual union in marriage in order to give us a tiny glimpse of what it means for Jesus to love us. So if you think about the greatest experience of intimacy you've ever had in your life, that was given to you only so that you would see a tiny echo in that of the kind of love that Jesus has for you. Are we better off without Jesus? I certainly don't think that I am. I would love now to hear your thoughts and questions. So I think Justin's going to come up and we'll do some text and QA. Can we uh, thank her? with the microphone. Uh, it's unfortunately built for my gigantic head and not for hers. So, um, hey, real quick, could you say the word elixir one more time for us? Elixir. Yeah. <laughs> That's way better. All right, why don't you have a seat? <laughs> yeah, it's great. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> one more time, elixir? Okay, we have Just some... Just my American impression. I Please, yeah. Home. So my husband comes from Oklahoma. That's not funny, that wasn't funny. <laughs> it's really hard to find good Christian men in England. You have to import them sometimes. And mm, this is my best American expression. Inspired by my lovely mother-in-law. Brian, don't use that word! <laughs> Really good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Well, we have some questions, uh, so we'll have the questions up on the screen there, and uh, let's go ahead. Question number one. Just project people's thoughts onto the screens. <laughs> yeah. It's not mine. Are the benefits you listed exclusive to Christianity, or are they common to all religions? Great question. Uh, which benefits is is part of the answer? So. Regular religious participation, i.e. showing up to religious services at least once a week, is, is good for you in the, the mental and physical ways that I described. Most of these studies done in America have been done on church going, but it's not exclusive to Christianity. It, it is exclusive though, to um, what you might call organized religion. So one of the questions people have looked at is whether it's just the kind of social impact of going to a place every week and doing a thing with other people who like that thing. So could you just show up to the golf club every week and see the same people and have the same effect? And that accounts for about 30 to 40% of the effects that are seen, but, but not the rest. 
So it does seem there's something about specifically religious participation um, of the kind that you would experience at Women's Church. Yeah. So, the, so to be clear, it's not necessarily exclusive to Christianity, Islam, and Judaism would experience some of those same positive effects, theoretically. Yes. Now, there are other, other areas where there would be significant differentials. Um, in, in particular, actually, Christianity has always been like a magnet for women in a way that um, Islam, which as I said, is the main kind of competitor to Christianity in the religious world today, hasn't been. And so if you're looking at benefits for individuals in different demographics, for example, women do really well out of Christianity compared to pretty much any other belief system. So that's why I want to say, oh, which benefits are you talking about? Yeah, that's great. All right, next question. Ooh, long one, okay. <laughs> Settle in. If regular religious practice is an, what's that word? <laughs> Elixir for mental and physical health, how does one square this away if they remain unconvinced of the factual claims of the religion, i.e. the existence of God? In other words, does religious belief have a monopoly on the positive aspects of religion you detailed? Yeah, that's a, another great question. And it's something that, that brilliant book by Christian Smith touches on. Um, so, because I semi-answered that in the last question, I'm going to answer a slightly similar but different question here. Um, Christian Smith says, if you recognize the fact that you really do need Christianity in order to undergird the moral beliefs that a lot of um, you know, very well-meaning atheists have today, then you find yourself in a position where if you're a principled atheist, what you most want is for people to actually continue to be religious. Because then they'll, they'll continue to have the kind of positive, hopeful attitude towards life, they'll continue to have the sort of sacrificing attitude toward, toward others that it seems to produce. And so you kind of want them not to realize that atheism is true and not Christianity. Which puts you in a really awkward position if you're the kind of atheist who has set a lot of store by intellectual honesty. So whereas there's an extent to which you can show up and do some of the things that people do in religious services and people have you know, tried the kind of atheist equivalents of church where you all get together and you, you know, read Plato or something and, and you know, sing, sing songs about Richard Dawkins or whatever it is. Um, that only works a little bit like, um, I think your friend Trip was saying, a little bit like a placebo works, which is like, as long as you don't know it's the placebo, it might work. But once you start to say, hey, it's just like a piece of sugar, it's not actually doing any good, you lose the benefits of it. So there's something something in there about needing to actually be kind of convinced by what you're doing um, for it to make a difference. In, if I remember correctly, in your book, you quote uh, Elaine de Botanet uh, in a TED Talk, kind of promoting the idea of an atheistic church and kind of crying out to Shakespeare and to other kind of known atheists as kind of a similar idea to going to church. Yeah, so one of the, one of the problems that um, atheist leaders stumble up against is that you really struggle for ecstasy and joy within their worldview. And so Alain de Botton, who's um, an atheist philosopher and founder of a thing called the School of Life, he has this idea that you know, we should all get, all get together as atheists, and just as in, in the black church tradition, you might have a great preacher who's preaching this great, great message and people are shouting about the name, thank you Jesus, thank you Christ, thank you Saviour. He says, we atheists should shout back, 
when, you know, when I am the bottom give this brilliant presentation, my atheist audience or congregation should shout back, thank you Plato, thank you Shakespeare, thank you Jane Austen. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa there. Okay, like, Plato, maybe. Shakespeare, I don't think so. I mean, his whole world is so shaped by Christianity. I'm not sure how I feel about being an atheist icon. And Jane Austen, like, get off my turf. <laughs> so Jane Austen was a deeply committed Christian. Not just a sort of, I happen to live in Britain at a certain time where people go to church kind of Christian, but like, proper serious Jesus-loving Christian who wrote her own prayers and like, led devotionals at home. So she's not going to be impressed by any of this calling out in praise of her. That wasn't the answer to your question, but I had no, <laughs> And you pronounced his name far better than I did as well, so that's good. Uh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Choosing not to be offended by that. All right, next question. What trends have you found in your research about Christianity in higher education? So many stories seem to have the format one, raised religious Christian, two, went to college and were told religion is for the foolish, three, lose faith or at least engagement with their faith. Yeah, so, so this sometimes happens. Uh, the opposite often happens as well. And um, as mentioned as two earlier, there's a, a survey done by Pew Forum um, looking at the, the last generation in America um, and if we project that forward to this generation, it'd be interesting because they said that people who are raised um, Catholic in America have a 60% chance of still identifying as Catholic when they're adults. So you know, 40% of people raised Catholic no longer identify as Catholic. If you're raised non-religious in America, you also have a 60% chance of identifying as non-religious as an adult. So you have a 40% chance of switching out of that, typically to become a Christian. And if you're raised Protestant in America, you have an 80% chance of continuing to identify as Protestant as an adult. So yes, we, we hear quite a lot of stories of people who you know, grow up and, and get over religious belief, and sometimes that happens in college. It is true that you're more likely to identify as an atheist if you have a, a college education, um, versus somebody who's been generally non-religious or, or semi-religious. You're more likely to kind of crystallize into that view. But it is not true that you're less likely to be a serious Christian as you become more educated. In fact, if you compare less educated Christians to more educated, the more educated Christians are more likely to go to church every week than the less educated. So it's sort of not the case that you, like the more education you get, the less religious you become. Um, I have the, the privilege over nearly a decade of working with Christian professors at universities like Harvard and MIT and Cambridge and Oxford and Stanford and who knows where. And I have often heard stories of people going to college and actually becoming Christians, or even already being professors and, and becoming Christians at that point in their career. So it's certainly not the case that the more education you get, the less likely you are to believe. Um, I love the quote by um, Francis Bacon, who was one of the, the founders of the scientific method in England. He wrote an essay entitled Of Atheism, where he said, a little philosophy, and that included science at this time, a little philosophy inclined man's mind to atheism, but depth in philosophy bringeth man back again to religion. And I, I think there's a lot of truth in that. That's great. It seems like the freest countries are progressing toward non-belief. Is the projected global growth in Christianity simply explained by more countries coming out of poverty and oppressive regimes? 
Oh, this is a great question. Uh, and in some ways, the opposite phenomenon is happening. Because if you think about China today, uh, it is a communist regime, um, and uh, in various ways, oppressing its people. And people are actually, in China, by the, the millions, becoming Christians, I think partly because Christianity delivers on the promise of, of communism that communism couldn't deliver in terms of, of, of justice and um, a sense of equality and all those, all the best aspirations of communism are sort of like with Christianity, Christianity with like the heart gripped out of it somehow. Um, so it, it, it's not the case that as people become freer, they're less likely to be Christians. Um, the, the poverty question is an interesting and complex one. Um, you'll know if you have had much exposure to the Bible, but the Bible is actually pretty hard on rich people and pretty pro-poor people. And Jesus, in fact, said that it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And I, I messaged uh, Tyler Vanderbilt, um, one of my other prof buddies, um, asking him a question actually about countries like Denmark and Sweden and Norway that have high levels of, of reported happiness and are actually pretty, pretty secular relative to other places. And he said, even in those countries, people who go to church regularly are happier and healthier and all those things than their secular peers. And his sense is that it's actually the increase in wealth that has um, driven to some extent the secularity in those, those countries partly because of what I just referenced, of the sense within Christianity that um, as you become wealthier and more comfortable, you can become less aware of your need and therefore less likely to throw yourself in the mercy of Jesus. Um, and a good friend who, who pastors a church in Malawi grew up in the UK and he said, he said if, you, if you live in England um, and you say you believe in God, people say, what, are you stupid or something? He said in, in Africa, in his experience, if you say you don't believe in God, people are like, what, are you stupid or something? Because, because people in Malawi are having to every day encounter the fact that those around them who they love are dying. And people in England are able to keep those kinds of questions at arm's length because of greater wealth and prosperity. So it's a very complex question, and I'm not saying how we answers to it, but I think there's something in there about um, need and exposure to death and suffering driving us to faith in ways that prosperity and comfort don't. Dawkins and Harris have both written at length about morality being an innate part of our evolutionary biology. Why not mention this after mentioning a snippet from Harris's free will? Love this session as well. <clears throat> and I, there's so, gosh, there's so much I, I, if I could have kept you here for five hours, I would have done, believe me. Um, so one of the interesting things that happened in the last few years is a field called um, uh, evolution and altruism has been emerging which is, is looking at um, evolution not just as something that drives competition and kind of all the nasty things of like trying to kill each other and, and make with as many people as possible and, and all of that jazz, but actually um, uncovering some sort of scientific models for saying evolution can be associated with, with altruism and, and, and sacrificing for others. 
And one of the, the world leaders in this is another Harvard professor. I hate referencing Harvard professors because Cambridge, like, from Cambridge, I really don't much like Harvard, but you know. <laughs> uh, a guy named Martin Novak, who um, heads up the program for evolutionary dynamics at Harvard. And he is a you know, world leader in evolutionary um, altruism. And he is also himself a Catholic Christian. So the best that science can do for us when it comes to um, morality is to say, well, there are circumstances where um, we might be willing to act altruistically towards people who are in our family or in our tribe, in our kind of network. Um, and, and it can be a complex thing. It's not just like, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It can be, you scratch my back and then somebody else will see you scratching my back and scratch yours. Like it can be a sort of more of a communal thing. So it can expand out a little bit from a, an immediate reciprocity. It can't do the work for us of, of having us care about people who live in completely different places who are being utterly different to the tribes from us and who are suffering. It cannot, cannot lay moral claims on us like that. And even if we can um, find some sort of scientific basis for some of our moral instincts, if that's all we have, it's not actually grounding our morality. It, I could say, you know, my husband and I are, are married and we have a kind of evolutionary drive to stay together because it's propagating our genes. We have three children, you know, two becomes three. Great news evolutionary. If that's all that I have to say about marriage and about love, I've really lost everything that it truly means to be human. Is Christianity good for people who identify as LGBT? Another great question. Um, so a piece of my story that I did not tell tonight because we weren't here for five hours is that um, I, as long as I can remember, have always been attracted to women rather than to men. Um, interestingly, like, I'm actually the, the most typical kind of same-sex attracted person. And this is, this is relatively recent research done by a woman named Lisa Diamond, who's a professor at the University of Utah. And she's herself a, a lesbian activist in a, in a committed um, relationship with another woman. And she has researched the, the proportions of people who are same-sex attracted um, and how these sort of dynamics play out. So it turns out about 14% of women experience attraction to other women, but only 1% are exclusively same-sex attracted. And for men, I think it's about 7% who experience attraction to other men and 2% and who are exclusively so. Um, so the, the category of people like me who are attracted to those of their same sex, but not exclusively so, and in particular women who are in that category, it is the largest group. And I, I always thought I was a little bit sort of offbeat, but apparently I'm extremely boring and normal. Um, and it is also the case that uh, our sexual attractions can change over time, which again, uh, so Lisa Darnham, as I say, is a lesbian activist, and her own research has um, been quite uncomfortable for her, because one of the things she's done is she said, okay, for decades, we haven't been asking supposedly heterosexual women about their actual patterns of attraction. So we haven't found out that in fact, they're quite often attracted to other women. And we haven't been asking self-identified gay men about their attraction patterns to, to women as well. And it turns out there's an awful lot of kind of messiness across the spectrum here. And the way she puts it is, um, 
when we categorise people as straight or gay, they're not so much cutting nature but it's joints, so it's really imposing some joints on a rather messy phenomenon. So the first thing I want to say is the idea that there is a sort of LGBT community over here and church over here it is missing the fact that, that these two are very, very kind of intersecting communities. Um, as I say, personally myself, um, that's, that's my own history. My, my best friend in my church in, in Cambridge um, came to Christ when she was an undergraduate at Yale out of a lesbian atheist background um, entirely. So she, she stole a copy of um, Mere Christianity from a friend. <laughs> After her girlfriend broke up with her, ended up reading it and becoming a Christian. And it was like, what do I do now? This is craziness. Um, so, there's a lot of intersection between the LGBT community and, and, and the church. And I think that one of the things that the church has really missed and messed up on, honestly, in the last um, several decades, if not hundreds of years, is not giving us a, an actual biblical theology of what sexuality is, is about. I, I, I gestured toward this at the end of my talk. <laughs> But the Bible tells a story where there's this massive metaphor of God as a loving husband and his people as, as his wife. We see that through the Old Testament. And then we see Jesus stepping onto the shooting stage and declaring that he is the bridegroom. And then we see Paul in the letter to the Ephesians describing human marriage as like a little scale model of Jesus' love for his people. And we see in the book of Revelation that Jesus' marriage to his church brings heaven and earth back together. That is, the, that is the central point of sexuality and of marriage from a Christian perspective. It's the reason that God made male and female in the first place, was to give us this, this way of grasping onto a, a tiny taste of what it means for Jesus to love us. And it is importantly a love across difference. So often when we, we have conversations about sexuality from a, from a biblical perspective, we miss the, the central point, which is that it's about the gospel, actually. Like, from a biblical perspective, Christian sexual ethics are about the gospel. They're not just about like, here's what you can and can't do. So that's number one. The other way in which I think the church is really messed up is that we have failed to deliver on the extraordinarily high calling to love that the Bible gives us. So people sometimes say that the Bible condemns same-sex relationships, and I always want to say, no, it does not. The Bible commands same-sex relationships at a level of intimacy that we Christians hardly ever reach. So if you read the Bible, you'll see that Christians are, are called one body together. They're called brothers and sisters. Um, Paul describes this as being knit together in love. Uh, he calls his friend Onesimus his very heart, and he says that he was among the Thessalonians like a nurse and mother with her children. So this is incredibly intensely intimate, loving language that's used to describe the relationship between Christians. And in, in particular, I think the relationship, the like, relationship between Christians in, in same-sex friendship. So just as the Bible gives us this incredible picture of what it means for Jesus to love us in sexual relationships, it also gives us this idea of friendship. And the Bible talks about Jesus as our friend and God as our friend. And we get this, this picture of God's inclusive love for us in our experiences of friendship. But one of the reasons that the biblical friendship actually kind of works and is its own thing is because it is separated out from sexual relationships. So I think there's this, 
this whole sort of theological logic to gender and sexuality, to why Christians have a sort of odd sexual ethics. And, and it's odd today, it was actually very odd in the first century, um, this idea that monogamous marriage between a man and a woman is the only appropriate context for sex. That was like craziness in the first century. Not because it wasn't expected of women, which it was, but men were allowed to sleep with anyone they liked, um, male or female. Uh, that, that was pretty much great in the first century. So I think there's a very long answer to a very complicated question. I think that true Christianity gives us a vision of intimacy that is not collapsed down into sexual relationships or even into the nuclear family. I think often churches exist as if that weren't the case and we, we buy into this idea that the only real intimacy is sexual intimacy or, or at least the nuclear family. And so going back to this question, is, is Christianity good for people who identify as LGBT? I would say somebody who, who in many ways does it's been incredibly good for me, but only because I get to experience deep, abiding, fierce love um, from people of my same sex, as well as from my husband, and as well as in relationship with my children. So there's no, I mean, this could be a whole other evening conversation in itself, and I think Christians have often made a huge mess and caused a lot of hurt in this area, but I actually don't think that that's what the Bible calls us to. I think it calls us to a highly inclusive and beautiful picture of life. That's good. I think we have time for one more. You say Christianity is good for us, but Europe was greatly influenced by Christianity for hundreds of years and still developed into two world wars. Isn't that Christianity's fault? Uh, yeah, yeah. So there's a whole chapter in my book, well, so there are two chapters in my book that I had to do extensive research for that I hadn't done in the previous kind of 10 years. Most of the chapters I was like, okay, I've thought about this for a long time, here it is. So it's all people, here it is. Those two chapters were one, um, doesn't religion cause violence, and the other one was on slavery. And what this question is pointing to is the, the very important reality that a supposedly Christian country, Germany, uh, in the early 20th century, mid 20th century, um, committed one of the worst genocides in, in history um, and sparked you know, the Second World War in particular as well as the First. Now, what's interesting is if you look at what happened in Germany, um, Hitler took a different part, path to Marx. Marx said uh, religion needs to be got rid of in order for this new just moral order to emerge. Hitler positioned himself as the sort of insulation against communist atheism. And he said, he said, oh yeah, yeah, I believe in Christianity, I'm going to call it positive Christianity. And what he and the, the Nazis did was a sort of three-part move. They, they got rid of the Old Testament, because guess what, the Old Testament is extremely Jewish. They rebranded Jesus, because guess what? Jesus is extremely Jewish. And they literally, they, they, they edited and changed the New Testament so that it didn't say Jewish things and it didn't say anti-Nazi things. You have to do an awful lot of work in the New Testament to make that work, but they did. They effectively 
reinvented a religion. They invented, in fact, a new religion with, instead of Jesus as the Messiah, with Hitler as the Messiah. And I, I document some of this in my book, but they, they had Hitler youth, like, literally praying to Hitler. Um, they changed the Ten Commandments, say things like, honour your Fuhrer and Master, and they're like, oh my goodness. It's like, it would almost be funny if it weren't so horrific, like the things that, that they did. Um, I mean, obviously in general, but in particular, the, the text of the, of the scriptures. And so, what happened was you ended up with this, this thing that was being called Christianity, but was so clearly and obviously not Christianity. And, and you saw a similar phenomenon, actually, in America during the time of slavery, where um, there was this real question about, like, oh, what do we do with slaves in terms of, of Christian belief? Because if you put a Bible into a slave's hands and you let them learn how to read, guess what? They very quickly realize that what we're doing is absolutely the opposite of Christianity. So there are a couple of strategies. There's one, you stop your slaves learning to read so they can't actually access the scriptures. But the other thing you can do is you can actually edit out pieces of the scriptures, just like the Nazis did. You can edit out all the pieces that are going to cause you real problems if your slaves start to read it and say, wait a minute, this isn't what you're doing at all. So what happened in Germany was a, a reinvention of Christianity that, that threw the scriptures out effectively and um, made Hitler the Messiah. And I think, I mean, clearly, there are so many cautionary tales from, from what happened in, in Europe and in Germany in particular at that time. But one of them, I think, to us today is that we edit out parts of the scripture at our peril because the Bible will always be culturally uncomfortable. And it's only by exposing ourselves to all of it and reading it all in context that we're going to have any handle on what parts of our own beliefs of our culture today are actually going to turn out to be seen as kind of horrific in future generations. So I think it exposes to me our desperate need to cling on to the actual scriptures and not to try to edit them to our own ends. Do you guys thank Rebecca for me? Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church. For more information, go to iconchurch.org.